Good morning, church. Good morning, City Life. Welcome to one more week of our virtual church where we're together online for almost a year. Uh, and I want to start off with this. Today we're in our mystery series still and uh, preaching through Ephesians, talking about the mystery of what God accomplished in Christ. Um, and let's start off with this story. Again, second week in a row, we're going to 2012, pivotal year in my life, apparently. Um, 2012, I'm in my first semester of seminary. I'm in my class. I go there early like I usually do because I'm a great student. Um, <laughs> uh, and I go, I read the handouts, I see everything, okay, looks good, just a normal class. Uh, I read some of the handouts, I see that half of the class, the second half is going to be on de- the topic of deliverance, and I have this like a uh, little like fascination with it. And um, we're going through class, everything is fine, I'm okay, things are normal, and then we start this. And immediately after my professor prays, I've shared this story before, so I won't go into great detail, but as soon as he prays to open up our session on deliverance, I'm like instantly teleported to my room as a kid, seeing, not ever physically seeing, but feeling these eyes looking at me and being afraid. Um, And I realized I am not going to leave this class without getting this professor to pray for me because you you can't do this to me without praying for me. And so after class, I go and I ask him, I was like, well, you need to pray for me. He gathered up some students who are still left in the room and everyone started praying for me. And I'm not quite sure how long it took because it felt like a long time. But he started praying over me, praying deliverance over me because I told him what I had felt. And my, this is my first experience, one of my first like real spiritual experiences ever. And he prays. And, and as he's praying, I just feel like something in my gut and over and over again it's happened in waves of like coming up out of up through my throat and coming out of my mouth and I just over and over and over again as he prayed deliverance freedom from spirits I just felt this I felt this in something in my belly come out out of my mouth and afterwards after doing this for a long time the one thing, this is why I share this story, the one thing that I just was so, couldn't get away from was gratitude, was, Lord, your, your grace and your kindness to me is overwhelming. Later on, I would have questions like, why did this happen? Why me? Why so long? Why was I in that state for like for so many years of my life? Why did that happen? And I processed all of those in time because I, I was on a mission to be a healthy person. And so I, those questions came later. But in that moment, the only thing I could really focus on was, God, you are so good. You are so good to me. You brought me freedom. I feel light right now. I feel tall. I feel strong. I, I don't know if I've ever felt this way before. And you brought freedom into my life. I've been a Christian almost all my life, but right now I, know, I taste what real freedom means. And I just couldn't stop thanking him. I, I ran to Anne after class, and I was like, but this was before a few months before we got married, but she was already living in our apartment that I would move into. And I was like, Anne, I can't like, wait until you hear what just happened to me. I went to my mom when I got home. I was like, Mom, listen to this. God freed me today. And all I, was, all I could think about and talk about was his goodness and his grace, his kindness. 
And so today we are in a new part of Ephesians, the last week where Paul sets aside space to talk about our new life. Remember, our whole Ephesians series is broke up into, broken up into four groups, and right now we're talking about new life. Paul, over and over again, telling us about what this new life that we have in Christ, what it really means. And then we get to this, Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10, and we see these two-word interruption that Paul has been building up to. And he talks about, but God. But God. Some of the two most loving words in Scripture, but God. That God interrupts our lives to bring us good things. Because he loved you, but God. But God, because he cares for you. But God, because before the foundations of the earth, before the foundations of all of creation were set, he chose us in Christ. And so everything in our life is, comes up to this moment, a but God. Because Christ wanted to bring me freedom in my life. Because all of my life should be found in Christ. But God came when I wasn't in Christ and he showed me in Christ and he changed my life forever. That everything that really matters in my life that holds eternal significance I have now because I am in Christ. And so let's pray to allow the Holy Spirit to do the work that only he can do this morning. This, the scope of our series here is really quite ambitious. We're letting this book of Ephesians tell us who we really are so that we can live in a way that we've never lived before and experience more freedom in Christ. And so let's continue to do that. Let's pray to allow the Spirit to move in our lives, to teach us, to grow us, to mature us, to let us accept and believe things that we maybe have uh, resisted or fought against for a long time. But but because God's love just is so good and kind to us, let's allow him the room to speak to us this morning. And so please uh, pray with me. Lord, we just I thank you for this day. I thank you for your goodness, for your kindness, for your grace. I thank you that you have been working in our lives, that you've chosen us before all of this was even created that you want everyone to be in Christ, that you wish that none shall perish but find everlasting life, Lord. I pray that over our church this morning, Lord, we take up our, our authority as believers in you and, and we say, Lord, uh, God's, God's scripture, Holy Spirit, speak to us and do not let us leave here this morning the same, but and put something in our hearts that will change the way we really live and understand what you've brought us. Lord, uh, help us to know that we have been made for good works. Lord, we love you in all things. We give you this morning. Have your way uh, in our congregation. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be reading out of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And this is what God's word says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God... 
being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable richness of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that, one may, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Amen. Church, today we're going to continue talking about this new life that we have in Christ. And Paul here, this is quite a different passage, it's quite a different tone from what we've been reading. And he starts to, he starts to lay out something that is so important for us to understand. The, the, the biblical, scriptural diagnostic of humanity. And this is what we find. We find that we are fallen and that we are unjust and we are utterly incomplete. It's quite sobering to read the first three verses here. It's quite sobering to hear what God has to say about life when it's not lived in Christ. And my challenge for us today is to not to turn towards pessimism like the world often does when they hear what Scripture has to say about our nature. This isn't pessimistic. But this is, in my opinion, and in the church's opinion, just utterly realistic. That we all know... That there's something about our nature that is incomplete. That is always searching for more and more and is always hungry and is never afraid of taking more and more. That we have the capacity of so much evil in, in every single one of us, in all of mankind. And so it's not pessimistic, but it's realistic. This is the biblical view of mankind. And it's realistic. I think that somewhere in all of us, we know deep down inside that this is an accurate picture. Whether you're a believer in Christ or you're not, I think we all know that, there's, that we are incomplete people. That all of us come together and even when we want to do good, it's always incomplete. It's never enough. And it answers the questions, the big questions, like why is there so much evil? There are other answers as well, but a very big portion of that equation is that it's us, it's me, it's you, it's, it's us, that we are c- capable of doing so much evil and injustice towards one another, that there's something missing that we always want. And so here, Paul starts to outline the diagnosis. He starts by talking to us about three conditions that we have. That a, a life outside of Christ is death, that a life outside of Christ has slave, that makes us enslaved, there's slavery, and that a life outside of Christ, we are condemned. And so let's, let's break these three down. Let's get in here and then see what God has to say about all of these conditions and what he did. Let's talk about dead. In our first point, let's read verse 1 together. We, we don't even have to get much further than that. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Quite to the point. Paul's wasting no time in this. 
And according to the Christian faith, according to what we believe, this is a factual statement. This is not a metaphor. This isn't a statement of metaphor, but this is a factual statement. That everyone who is not in Christ is in a state of living dead. Which is funny because all of these, remember a couple years ago when like every other movie that came out was about zombies? Well, we're always told that, you know, zombie movies came because it was a a commentary on modern culture, right? Especially consumerism, that we're just all these like living dead, just following whatever we're told to follow. But really, uh, I think the Bible should be getting some royalties here from all of these zombie movies because the idea of being a zombie is, is found in Ephesians. I don't know if that's the first place we ever had it, but it's in the Bible. It's a pretty old book here, and it's in here, that life outside of Christ is the state of living dead. That if we say that we are alive in Christ, then being outside of Christ, there is only death. And let's look at the two words that are broken down here, because we need to know what Scripture is really telling us and not just filling the holes with what we might think. Trespasses and sin. The word trespass in the Greek is paraptoma. And what it means is it's a false step or a crossing of a boundary outside of the right path. And this is what scripture communicates when it uses this Greek word. It says that we sin in our conscious decisions all the time. That we make calculated decisions. We assess what we're going to do. And often we pick the thing that we know is wrong because we want for a lot of reasons. But sin is this conscious decision where we think through. It's active sin. It's sin of commission. I'm going to do this and so this is what I want to do. And then it talks, it includes the word sin here. And this Greek word here is uh, harmartia. And what this word means is missing the mark or falling short. It's an archery term. So quite literally, it means that you have your bow and arrow and you just miss the mark. And the idea of sin here is that sin even comes into our lives uh, passively. It comes into our lives when we forget who we belong to, when we forget that our whole life is about worshiping the Lord, when we should make Christ the center of everything. We forget and sin all the time because our nature is incomplete. We are not always pointed towards Christ. And so in essence here, it's a sin of forgetting, that we sin in our forgetfulness all the time. It's the sin of passivity or omission. And so both, when used together, they come here and represent just our whole being, right? That at times I go out and I sin deliberately. Like sometimes I think about what I should do. I know what I shouldn't do. And I still say, I'm, I'm going to do this. And then also in my life, I just forget about the Lord. I don't think about him. I don't make him my everything. I forget that my whole purpose is to be worshiping him. As I work, as I talk to someone, as I'm walking down to the path station, I'm supposed to be worshiping, but I forget often. How many times do I go through a whole day without praying? Did I go through an hour without praying? I forget about him all the time. And I don't know about you. But when I'm honest with myself, I know that this is who I am. I know that this biblical picture of humanity is me. I see it in myself and I see it in in people all the time. That we're just incomplete all over the place. 
There are times when I weigh out my decisions and outcomes and I deliberately just say, Lord, I'm going I'm to do whatever I want right now. Step aside. But then I'm also so guilty of uh, for just forgetting about him. Think about all, the, all of us who grew up in the church. We don't do anything that bad, right? We're not cheating on our spouses or we're not cheating on our taxes. or <laughs> Apparently cheating is on my right, mind right now for some reason. But we're not doing all of these big things. But how many times am I just omitting God from my life passively? Not making everything about him. I, I do this all the time. I sin every year. I sin every month. I sin every week. I sin every day. I sin every hour. And in my worst times, I'm guilty of sinning on a minute-to-minute basis. And I forget about God's kindness and His mercy and His grace that has brought me out of death. That has taken me from a place of being utterly just lost. Here's a a quote from John Stott, this guy that I've been quoting all week now and most likely will continue to quote almost every week from here on out. Uh, He says this, Are we to say that such people... If Christ has not saved them, are dead? Yes, indeed, we must and do say this very thing. For in this fear which matters supremely, which is neither body nor mind nor the personality, but the soul, they have no life. So we should not hesitate to affirm that a life without God, however physically fit and mentally alert the person may be, is a living death, and that those who, are, those who live it are dead even while they are living. To affirm this paradox is to become aware that the basic tragedy of fallen human existence, instead of, instead of listening to the Lord and making my whole life about Him, I used to be completely dead. There was no life found in me before I found Christ. And it's only Christ that has made me actually start to live. Actually stop fearing life and death and myself. And let's see how he breaks this down even further. Because he talks about a couple more things. He starts talking about the prince of the power of the air and the sons of disobedience and children of wrath. Let's see what he's talking about that. And when we talk about enslaved and condemned. Let's read verses 1 to 3. God's word says this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Here Paul continues to diagnose our human condition. He brings up three ways in which we are led astray or just go astray on our own. The first one he talks about is following the course of this world. Now this one has always, for me, been uh, tough for me to, to accept. Um, I've accepted this only really later in my walk with Christ. Because I grew up in this really liberal environment in the New York suburbs. And I was always told, you know, we're doing it. We're getting there. We're getting better. Humanity is evolving. We're so much smarter and better than we used to be. Our society is so much more just. It's headed towards this good place. And, and so I never really considered that, um, that even our whole society can be broken or fallen or incomplete But really, if we just think about society, I I studied sociology for undergrad. That was my major. 
And if we just, if we think that this society is this collection of people, right, and all of our cultures working together, coming, interacting with one another, and if I am coming into the equation and I'm incomplete, and if everyone else coming into this equation is incomplete, there's going to be a sense that all of human societies are incomplete. That we're not building this thing. This is, this is exactly the story of Babel where they thought that they could make a name for themselves and they're building this empire, this huge building. And God's and God saying, like, you really think that this is really based on me, on my principles, on my values? Is, does this look like my kingdom? Are there going to be homeless people here? Is there going to be racism in my kingdom? Are you going to hate one another in my kingdom? All of these things. Are they going to be in heaven in this place where God reigns supremely? Now there's so much about our culture and every human culture that just falls short and is incomplete. And that we, fallen and incomplete people, produce fallen and incomplete societies that need God to radically change every part of the world. That any time that there's subhuman conditions for people, that is not a kingdom that exemplifies God and his kingdom. And so we are, we are led astray by this, the societies, the course of this world that we buy into at times. What's popular today? Like, oh, the church failed in this last, but now, like, we got this. We're going to do this better. And then the second thing he starts talking about is, is following the devil. He calls him here the prince of the power of the air. And I love how Paul just, Paul, he's so smart. The Holy Spirit was just working over time when he would put this down on paper. Here, the, the word, he calls him the prince of the power of the air. And I love the word for air that he uses here. The word here, uh, most, um, what's it called? Most uh, clearly interpreted, like, I've, whatever that word is, I'm blanking right now. But the direct translation, that's it, the direct translation of it, of that word is foggy atmosphere. Saying that the, this, all this power that, the, that the Satan has and his kingdom has here in this world, which he really does. When, when Jesus was tempted, the third temptation was that Satan led him up to this mountain where he could, they could somehow see all of the world's kingdoms. And he said, I'll give all of this to you. I'll give you all of this power. And commentators always note that Christ never said, actually, you can't do that. No, but that uh, Satan does have a form of authority and power over this world. But at best, what he can do is this foggy atmosphere where, where it's not pure and it's not clean. You can't even see in it. It's broken. It's incomplete. At the very like, kindest way to interpret this, God is pointing out the impurity between his kingdom and Satan's. And then he also starts talking about the passions of the flesh, the desires of the body and the mind. And I want to talk about this, but I want to do this with a lot of tact because I actually feel like this one is quite overdone in the church often. That we often take good things that God made and we kill every inch of what God actually made in this. So here, as a, as a note, like he's, Paul is saying, you know what, every human desire, everything you think of intellectually, or all of your desires, what you want to do, all of your urges and um, appetites, that they become condemning and enslaving when they become the ultimate, when they replace God's rightful place at the head. And we need to be careful with this distinction because you know what, like, because God also affirms humanity. Let's, let's talk about some concretely. Hunger. That is, a, that is a human desire and bodily desire, right? Hunger is good. 
physically because it knows we need to eat and we would die if we didn't. Hunger is good spiritually because we need to know to hunger for the Lord that we are incomplete and so we're hungering. People who don't know Him are hungering for truth and they're searching for Him and He's out there and He's trying to help them find Him. Being tired. Being tired is great and holy at times because it shows me that I'm only human. I'm not Superman. I need a rest. I have boundaries in life. I need to say no to some things. I need to say yes to some things. And, and tired. I'm like, Lord, I'm just also so tired of seeing all of this happen around me. I'm tired of, of not practicing this in my own life, Lord. Make me more about what you tired can point me to Christ. But then also I specifically want to talk about attraction and sexual desire. Because often the church just completely murders what God made. And here God's saying, he's not saying like every, you are human and you are working properly if you are attracted to other people. That you are the living the way God designed your body and your mind and your emotions and all of our complexities. When you have sexual desire, it means, hey, you're alive. You're actually functioning the way God made you. And God made you this way and he says it's good. It becomes a problem when we act out of these desires in ways God tells us not to. But let's also affirm that God made these things and he called them good. And so not every desire or, or a thing that we want in our body or in our minds is evil because God put many of those things in, but it's when we take them and twist them and allow all these other things to become ultimate that God's saying, you know what, you've actually turned this into an idol. You've replaced me with this thing. And because that happens, you're, it's condemning you. It's enslaving you. I also like how he leaves room here to talk about what happens in our minds. Because I think as modern people, we are always often so guilty of this and saying, you know what, God, we've outthought you. Humans, we've evolved a good amount, right? We, we don't have to rely on scripture or faith. That's, that's for poor people around the world and that's for old people. Like, no, this is, well, humanity is so past this, but not, oh, and intellectual pride. The desires of, of our minds, our false ambition, rejection of the truth is all fair game to, for the Holy Spirit to say, you know what, this all points to your brokenness. And he also starts talking about, uh, he calls us children of wrath. And this is so important to talk about because we, before Christ, we are all, it says here, all of mankind are children of wrath. And this is so important to talk about because we, we all have these different ideas of what wrath is. And we say, we say things like, God, if you are good and holy, then how can you also be a God of wrath? What's going on here? I don't understand how you can be good, how you can say all these good things about yourself, but then also reserve the right to your wrath. And, and this is what thank, thank, I thank God that he, has, that he is a God who knows wrath as well. Because God's wrath is his incompatibility with evil. It's God's unrelenting pursuit to eliminate all evil in this world and in all of creation. It's that God will never compromise or bend his will to evil in any way. And so he, his righteousness and his holiness will never accept wrath in, in evil in any form that it takes. God and evil are like oil and water. They cannot mix no matter how much we force them together. And so God's, we, also, we think about abusive fathers or abusive uh, 
partners or abusive friends and we equate that to God. We say, if wrath is this, then, we, then God's wrath must be good. But no, we need to affirm that God's wrath is never based on his mood. It's never based on a temper or out of spite or malice or animosity or revenge. It's not arbitrary. It's entirely predictable. And it's based on his perfect nature. This nature that will never accept evil and will never compromise with it. And so it's this, it's this pursuit of God's holiness that creates, you know what, I'm going to defeat this in every way, but because God knew this, he made a way for us out of his wrath. And this is supposed to contrast really powerfully with our nature, our fallen natures, that we are all children who deserve wrath because we have so much evil in us. We have, our hearts are infinitely capable of deceiving ourselves. But then the contrast starts to come now when God starts to talk about it. He says, you are all children of wrath. And if I did nothing, then you would only ever receive my wrath. But then we get our two words that change everything today, but God. Let's read verses 4 to 9 here. Let's see how the, how the contrast starts coming in thick right now. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of, his, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised, up, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable richness of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that one may boast. And let's see how this contrasts with, the, with our nature. Let's see what contrasts with the diagnosis on our humans, on our natural human nature. That God says that we are now alive in Christ. And, and he didn't even just do, make us alive, but he made us alive in Christ together. That he saved us by grace. He mentions that, he, Paul is just so overwhelmed by that, he mentions it twice in verse 5 and, and 8. That we are raised and seated with him in heavenly places. For us to know the immeasurable richness of his grace, which should remind us of what we talked about last week, the immeasurable richness of his power. How much immeasurable richness of something positive does God have to show us? And the ultimate contrast is here is that this is a life in Christ and and everything outside of Christ is death, slavery, condemnation, wrath, being lost, being in the dark. That this was our old nature. We had this nature of wrath. But now we live in this nature of grace. Both, both verse 5 and 8 again say uh, that we are saved by grace. And sometimes there is so much holiness and grammar. And this is one of those times we need to talk about the word saved. I, I, I'm starting to realize that I need to ask Anne for forgiveness over this. Uh, over the years, I've, I've always encouraged her. It's like, when you're talking to people who aren't Christians, don't use the, don't use the word saved because it has this connotation that, like, oh, like you, you're not saved or you're not good enough. But I was like, I'm starting to realize that I need to really repent, that I should be telling out of, in love and in 
tact, right? That people who are not in Christ, that they are not saved because the word saved here is so important and so valuable for us to truly understand. The, the word saved here, the tense it's written in it is the perfect participle. And if you don't know what the perfect participle is, let me enlighten you. Uh, the perfect participle is when you're communicating that something in the past was finished and done. That something happened in the past and is completely resolved. Like going to a Google uh, sheet with, with edits, right, with suggestions, and you get to hit that check mark there. It's resolved. Okay, it's done. It's fixed. There's no problem anymore. That is this definite set thing that the Lord made for us, that he prepared for us to receive. And it's not subject to change, but when you're in Christ, you are saved by grace and kindness. It's finished. It's done. In Christ, you've been saved. Paul, Paul mentions three ways in which Christ did that. I, every week, I've come with like multiple lists of threes. It's worked pretty perfectly, and I love it, but uh, <laughs> these are the three that he tied. This is the three things that Christ did to bring us out of this death and slavery and bondage. In his resurrection, he brought us back from the dead. That we, we share in his resurrection because we are alive. We'll, that'll be completed when we see him. But even now, we're, we're alive when we were dead. Ascension, which is that Christ was raised up to heaven. And because of it now, he's sitting above everything with all authority and rule. And so he brought us out of bondage. He lifted us out of our condition with him. And then session, which means that Christ is sitting on the throne and he's reigning. He's in session right now. He's in his ruling place. And how he, this being with the king has brought us out of slavery. All the ways in which he worked that out, where our slavery is done when we're in Christ. And so in Christ, we are alive. Like, never, like we weren't before. In Christ, we are raised up with him when we were so low. And that right now, currently, somehow we're seated with him in the heavenlies. And so city life, this means that Christ has made every way for you to know him, to have access for him. And more specifically and uniquely to this week's passage, he has made a way for God's wrath to be eliminated from our ledger. That there is no more wrath left for anyone who is in Christ. Not because we're perfect, because we're not. But because when God looks at us, he sees Christ. Because we are his heirs, co-heirs with Christ. Because we've been adopted. Because we're in the family. Because he has made up his mind that he wanted us in Christ. So church, if you know Christ, if you know that you're in Christ, and if one of those evidences that you know the Holy Spirit, you have a relationship with him, you hear him talking to you, you obey when he's urging you, then you have every right, every permission to live your life like you belong to the King of Kings, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the one who reigns over everything. And that you have been made an heir, a co-heir with Christ. And then now, that now you you as an heir produce new heirs. We also see so beautifully here, uh, Paul answer a question that we really haven't addressed yet, the why. The why. 
like in my deliverance, I was wondering, Lord, why? Why did this have to happen? This is so great, but so many years lost of being afraid at night or having or doing this because it made it better. Why? Like, Lord, why? Lord, why did you choose to be so generous to us, to me? Why, Lord, why? Why? It's when we taste, genuinely taste the goodness and kindness and grace of our Lord. He reveals these whys to us. And the, the why is based on his nature. That here we're told that God's nature is mercy in verse 4. Mercy here can be interpreted as love for those who are down and out. How down and out were we when we were dead? He brought us back to life. Or to life for the first time. Love in verse 4 the love to remove his wrath, to make a way to remove his wrath from us. That's how. Grace in verse 5 and 8. Grace that is undeserved favor. Verse 8 and 9 tell us that there's nothing about you that merited this. There's nothing that you've ever done or will ever do. You can convert every person on the planet right now to Christ. And it won't be based off of that. It's because it's all based on Christ and God and his decision before the foundations of the earth were set. And then special to this week is also his kindness. In verse 7. And the root of kindness is selflessness. Kindness can be expressed in a lot of different ways, but at its, at its root is the care or an attention for someone else other than you. And that only God can truly show kindness because he's the only one who is perfect in his selflessness. Even, even think about the Trinity. We, re, we might be confused at times because the God is, because the Father is lifting up Christ and he's sending out the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit is always pointing people to Christ and empowering God's will. And then Jesus is always telling people, I only do what the Father is doing. Like, the Father is incredible. I don't even, Philippians 2, I'm not even trying to be as good as him because, I, because I'm also perfectly humble. I'm Jesus Christ. Um, but... Point, look at the Father. I'm only doing what the Father's doing. And then, like, receive the whole, I'm going to leave. I'm going to get out the way. I'm going to step out the way so you get the better guy. He's the Holy Spirit. He's going to come here and, and live inside of you. I would only be next to you, but he's going to live inside of you and change everything about you. So even in his trinity, he's just, like, oh, so perfectly selfless. And only God can do that. We know that our nature, we can't, we're not like that. And so let me, let me read this quote again from, from John Stott. In raising and exalting Christ, he demonstrated the immeasurable greatness of his power. But in raising and exalting us, he displayed also the immeasurable richness of his grace and will continue to do so throughout eternity. That God in his, in his nature is so full of love, mercy, grace, kindness, not only did he exalt Christ, but in, in, the, in exalting Christ, he also exalts us. That he didn't just save, it's just saving us, just giving me salvation, just giving me a chance and a hope to hope for, for more than this. I'm like, oh God, that would have been more than enough. I would have eternally been in your debt, even right there. But no, that he exalts us and gives us so much more than we ever deserve is never based on you and me. We, you know that. I know that, that I don't deserve any of this. So let, let's, let's tie this together in our conclusion. Verse 10 perfectly 
ties all of this together. Let's conclude this a little bit. Verse 10 says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I don't, I don't think there's a better way to close this portion of Scripture. These ten verses here, so perfectly contained in themselves. We see first that we are his workmanship, created by Christ. And so, in, in essence, we, we walk around this life like the living stone in First Peter that we talked about months ago. That we are his work, workmanship. Going around and showing, you know what God is capable of? Let me tell you, because he did it to me. He, I was dead. I had no life. I had no love. I had nothing good in me. And now I have the greatest thing in me, because I know Christ. And it's Christ. We're his workmanship. Going around the world and pointing people back to him, and that should be our job. But even more than that, let's look at this. In verse 1 here, and two, it makes really clear that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following this, following that, following whatever you wanted to, following yourself, sinning on purpose, sinning by forgetting. You walked all of this way. But when we know Christ and when we are in Christ, we start, God gives us a different walk. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So church, Christians, all of this has happened, and we've been given a new walk. We've been given a new way to walk. We walked in death, in evil. We tore people down. We abused one another. We hurt one another. We left each other wanting. We're incomplete in everything that we do in every sense of who we are. But then when we know Christ, we're given this new walk to walk and his good works that God prepared for us beforehand. That our life is now about walking out good works. And is there anything better that we can offer people than Christ? Like think about that for a second. If people are dead in, in the truest sense of what it really means to be alive, people are dead if they're not in Christ then what can you, what's the best you can give them? It's Christ. It's actual life. It's being alive. It's having purpose of, of walking good works. So either Christ is everything or he's nothing. Paul even says that. It's like, if Christ isn't real, if all this is fake, then we should be the most pitied people in the world. But we don't think that this is false. We know that this, these are factual statements. We know that scripture actually sees us for who we are, even though we always try and look the other way. But after we found Christ, we find life. And we are given a new walk to walk in good works for us to be about producing new heirs, bringing people to Christ for the first time, taking Christians, helping them mature, start walking in this good way again, helping them be strong to know who they are, to know who God says that they are. But then also that we like generate this in people for the first time. City Life, I think God has put it on our church's heart this year to be about learning how to bring people into the faith for the first time. Lord, I pray that that comes to fruition. 
We want to see people come to know you for the first time. And so City Life, let's walk out our good walk. Let's walk out this purpose that Christ has given us. In a few moments, you'll be joining your MC calls. And so I want to give you prompt questions to go there. But church, let's remind ourselves that we have been saved. We brought into life for the first time. God has removed everything that held us in slavery, every bondage we have freedom from. And so let's reflect on these uh, prompt statements. So like last week, I'm going to read something, and then you guys all interact with it. Talk about if you believe it, if it's hard for you to believe this, if you know this in your mind, but you, don't, but you fail to like really accept it or live it out. Because these are big, really deep issues that Scripture is really quite clear about, but that it is hard for us to fully accept and live out at times. And so react to this. Here's the first reaction statement. People are living dead if they are outside of Christ. Do do we really believe that? Do we really think that in all the areas that truly matter, that there is no life? React to that statement. Statement two. Life outside of Christ is slavery and condemnation. We might, Sunday school answers, affirm that. But do we really think think that that is a true consequence is everyone outside of Christ in slavery and in bondage that they can't undo themselves and then reflection statement number three I am God's workmanship and I walk in good works I'm not talking about being perfect we've addressed that already you'll never be perfect until you see Christ face to face because Christ is the only one who fills all in all But is this your identity? Do you take this as the core foundational part of your identity? All right, church, I love you so much. So grateful for every single one of you. Let's join our MCs. We have big things coming. Go to the MC website. Sign up for a new MC. We are going to be uh, taking on something new that we haven't yet done, and we're so excited. More details will be coming out very shortly with that. We love you all. Can't wait. For us to be together again, have a good week. We'll see you soon.